Yes, it's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. I'd like to welcome to today's Backseat Driver Radio Show, Danny Hopkins, editor of Practical Classics magazine. Um, Anybody who follows social media or anything like that will have realised that with the plague in town, uh, the classic car world seems to have exploded even more than usual. The shows aren't happening, so thereby is the problem, but it hasn't stopped the owners restoring cars, working on cars and buying cars. The sales of classic cars of all types is incredible. So, Danny, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Hello, how are you? Now, I mean, I don't know whether you agree with what I've just said, but from your point of view, I mean, Practical Classics is a hands-on, get your spanners out, uh, get yourself all oily, and get on with repairing it yourself. But, I mean, what are you seeing in the world of classic cars at the moment? It's really buoyant. I think what happens is when, when times get tough, people get back into their kind of the things that make them feel good. And these passions of ours, this, these wonderful cars that we all love and look after, that's all part of that passion world, if you like. And so in order to kind of escape the nightmare that you, you see unfolding around you, or just to escape the telly, to be honest, <laughs> um, it's like it's, it's time to get into the shed and have a fettle. Or if not into the shed and have a fettle, get into the shed, get into your car and go for a drive. You know, just go, just get back in touch with something real and i think one, one of the things that, that working on a classic car does for you is it not for me anyway and i can only speak personally um is it it gets me back in touch with things it gets me back in touch with something physical if you fix something and it works it's really tangible it's it, 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 it it's you can't deny it it's very single-minded it's a bit like doing the garden in a way but except for blokes um, <laughs> i mean i'm just uh, putting in as i said i'm not mechanically minded but occasionally if i do have to fix something and the fix works i sit back uh, have a pot of tea and dare i say enjoy a quick cigarette and think my my i actually fixed that <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a good feeling. It's a great feeling. Um, a lot of our, re- and by the way, it's not just blokes; it's women too. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've actually now got more female readers of the magazine than ever before, which I'm really pleased about. It's to find out uh, what the husbands are up to. That's why. Well, that's probably what it is. Yeah, but um, we, yeah. So I, I, I'm not surprised that classic cars are buoyant at the moment. That it's booming because. Uh, I think people are very aware that the world is quite a difficult place to be in at the moment, and they and they want their comforts. They want their things that make them feel good. And, and certainly owning and running and fixing a classic car, for me, is the thing that makes me feel better than anything else. Um, as I was saying, I mean, what do you find are the most popular classic cars? Because, as I said, watching social media... Um, the one thing you notice, as I said before we uh, we went on air, a friend of mine deals in what I call affordable classic cars, things like Minis, Morris Miners, things like that. That seems yeah. to be the, the, the area of classic cars that is increasing in popularity, what you might call the affordable, um, the more ordinary classic cars, standard vanguards, anything like that. It's just one of those... Th- I mean that seems to be where the attention is heading towards ordinary cars without being disrespectful to the cars. No, absolutely. And, uh, and that's those are the cars that Practical Classics celebrates more than any others um, because we're interested in the cars that touched our lives. First, I think the first thing to say about that is that the popularity of these what you call affordable classics is based around nostalgia as much as anything else. These are the cars we remember breaking down in when we were kids. <laughs> uh, you know, and th- 
these are the cars that touched our lives. And actually, that somebody asked me about the cars that Practical Classics features, and, and I, I had to think about it, and, and I came up with the idea that, um, you know, the glossy magazines feature the cars that were on your wall, but Practical Classics features the cars that are on your parents' drive. Yeah. And there's, there's a big difference there. And those are the cars that we feel more affectionate about. Let me tell you a little story. I've been on lots of photo shoots as a, as a, a classic car journalist. I've been on photo shoots with Ferrari Dinos, with Lamborghini Countaches. I've been on photo shoots with all kinds of Astons and Exotica. I've also been on many, many photo shoots with Allegros and Marinas and Ford Cortinas. I'll tell you what. People come and see what you're doing, and they crowd round. But after 10 minutes, they move on with the exotic stuff. But after half an hour, they're still there with the cars that are further down the food chain, if you like. Yeah. And the reason is, is that everybody has got story. Everyone's got a tale to tell about the cars that their parents or their grandparents or their uncle had the first car they learnt to drive in, the car that they brought their baby home from school, from, from the hospital in. These are the ordinary cars that touched our lives, and there are stories around them. So that's one of the reasons why I think they're so popular. Also, the, the reason that Practical Classics features so many people in the magazine, as well as cars, because it's not just about the metal. With our cars, the cars down our end of the playing field, it's about the relationship you have with the car, as well as the car itself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I'm I'm not surprised that it's so popular. Um, the top end is has had its boom time, um, and I think a lot of that is to do with people who speculate with classic cars in the same way that they might speculate with gold or fine wines or whiskey. Um, I think that's driven a lot of the, the price rises at the top end of, of of the food chain. But down our end, the what I call the enthusiasts end. Um, the popularity is based on nostalgia. And I think also, given what we've just been through or what we're going through right now with COVID, I think the popularity is based on actually saying to yourself, well, I want something for me. I want something to do that's mine and that I can enjoy and that will be here when all this is over and I can enjoy even more then. Yeah. I mean, what would you say, in your opinion, is one of the more popular classic cars because ironically enough you alluded to the Morris Marina and one of the yeah. things I do in the normal times I commentate uh, at a lot of classic car shows and yeah. people are stunned when I say one of the rarest classics on the British roads is the Morris Marina and yeah. in my opinion apart from the fact Top Gear constantly kept dropping grand pianos on them um, ordinary cars M Morris Marinas anything like that uh once once they come to the end of their life, people scrap them off. So it is not the exotica that is rare, it is the ordinary that is rare now. Yeah, absolutely. The, the street furniture of our youth is gone. And you're not wrong. You're really not wrong about that because um, people don't value them. In, in There is a kind of period of a kind of a death period for a lot of cars, which is sort of between 15 and 25 years, where they just get binned off. People don't value them. People don't think they're important. Then suddenly you find there's only 10 left. <laughs> and that's and that's when they become ultra, ultra important because suddenly you've got this social document that's gone. Um, now, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic to uh, make people aware that these cars are more exclusive than, say, uh, an equivalent Ferrari of the same year. You'll find that with something like uh, Ferrari 250 GTO. There's probably, you know, dozens of those now around the country. There are more of them than there are Mazda 626 coupes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That, uh, uh, that, so, in, in a sense, if you want to if you want to have a, a relative argument and compare the two, you know, the Ferrari is common as muck. 
Yeah. The Mazda is the exclusive car. The Mazda is the car that actually people will turn around and go, blimey, I haven't seen one of those for years. You know, so if you want exclusivity, if you want something that really stands out from the crowd, something that will get people coming over to you on garage forecourts, and boy, have I been there, usually when you're in a hurry, to have a conversation about the Mazda 626 Coupe their dad had, or the Mazda 626 Coupe that you had that was the best car you ever owned and that you loved and that you really sad you sold it and wish you hadn't. You know, all of that stuff. So every time I've been stopped on garage forecourts in classic cars, I've driven hundreds, it's always the bog-standard cars you don't see anymore that inspire the most interest. People come across and have long conversations about every aspect of the, the, the nostalgia that they feel about seeing the car that you're in. As for Morris Marine, I can let you into a little exclusive. How about this? Go on. Um, I've just bought one. And yeah, nobody's even read that in a magazine yet. I've bought one uh, because my first three cars, I believe, were Morris Marinas back in the day when you could buy them for £80 a pop. <laughs> uh, they saw me through my student years. Um, and I've always vowed to go back. And because uh, one of one of my readers... I got in touch uh, a few issues ago and said, I've got a marina in the shed. Uh, I'm never going to put it back on the road. I'm too old now. Uh, Would you like it? And I said, yes. And I'll tell you what, he bought it in 1979. He parked it up in 1989 and it hasn't moved since. And we've extracted it. We're going to restore it. We're going to put it back on the road uh, next year because next year, would you believe, is the 50th anniversary of the (laughs) launch. 50. 50 years, just put that in, 50 years, half a century since the Morris Marina was launched. And the fascinating thing about this car, I mean, the Morris Marina's got a fantastic club, by the way. The club is superb. My Marina and Ital Owners Club is great, really passionate enthusiasts. Um, and uh, I, I tapped into them, I told them I've got this car. They said, well, what's the chassis number? I told them the chassis number, and they told me that I've got the second oldest Morris Marina Coupe in Britain. It was built two weeks after production began. So how about that for exclusive? <laughs> Which, um, besides the coupe, is it the 13 or is it the uh, the more desirable uh, twin cam 1800 with the MGB engine beneath its bonnet? It, it, they never made a twin cam. Um, it, the B series is the big block. Yes, the big block, Morris Marina. <laughs> um, but the, the uh, yeah, the, the, it's a 1300. It's a lowly 1300 super. But I tell you what, having owned both an 1800 and a 1300, I actually prefer the 1300. The reason being, the 1800 is very, is a big, is a boat anchor of an engine. It's very heavy. And the understeer, I mean, marinas suffer from understeer at the best of times, but yeah. with a big, heavy engine up front, it's pretty tough. You get more grunt, but it's, uh, you, you head for the hedge quite quickly. Um, so I've, I've, I've always actually, I've only had one, most of my marinas have been 1300s. And the A series, if you, if you set it up nicely, is it, is, it is quite perky. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a 1300 Super, pretty much base spec, um, and, it's at, and it's in lime flower green as well. <laughs> Get that, lime flower. It's, it's kind of, it's, my daughter, I showed her a picture of it, as I, of me dragging it out of this shed, and my, pic, my, my daughter just said, Dad, that's blue green. And I thought, yeah, it kind of is. It's probably the least desirable colour for what, isn't it? Probably. Well, it probably is. But I tell you what, I'm more excited about that than I have been about anything for a long time. It's a fabulous car, and I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth stuck into it. And we want to do quite a quick restoration on it, because we've got a little plan. Uh, The Marina, would you believe it? The Marina was launched. It's official launch, where they invited all the journalists to come and drive them, was in Cannes. Would you believe it? Cannes, the south of France. Right. Marina. 
Yeah, so I, and that was in April 1971. So I want to get this marina done by March, and I want to drive it to Cannes, and I want to re, I want to replicate the original launch. Um, because just yeah, why not? Let's drive a marina to Cannes. Let's show them what a real car looks like. Well, ironically enough, uh, you'll, you might know this, uh, they used to rally the marina, and the chosen marina to rally was the 1.3 coupe for the simple reason um, it was, as you said, the 1800 was a bit of a barge. The 1300 yeah. handled so well that it was yeah. the chosen rally car, and they were actually reasonably successful. It's just that yeah. it seems to have been eradicated from history. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, personally, you know, people are very rude about the marina. It was a very competent car built to make a profit for the company that built it. It, it, it was only, it's it, it, for me, having driven Cortinas and Marinas and Vivas, of the three, I think the marina's the easiest and most pleasant to drive. Um, you know, and I know I'll probably get shot down for that. But um, it, it, there is no difference between any of those three vehicles in terms of the market demographic they're aimed at and the quality of the car that, that, that was built to, to serve it. So, um, you know, people, uh, it's great to be rude about the marina. It's great to be rude about the Allegro. It's really funny. That joke's been done, been done now. Let's move on. Because, you know, the, these cars, for a lot of people, I mean, for me, that, the Morris Marina was my route to freedom. It's the only car I could afford back in the day. And I had the best times in that car. It's where I, I went out with my mates. I went courting. It was just the car that made me uh, a, an adult. It, it, turned, it helped me grow up. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be forever grateful to it. So, you know, when I see people being sniffy about it, these multi-millionaires dropping pianos on it, kind of makes me think, yeah, you know, look at yourselves, boys, because actually you, you're sort of trashing a lot of people's memories and it's not nice. Yeah. I mean, two other cars that are extremely rare, which were quite ordinary, and I discovered this once again commentating. The Datsun Cherry, the little chubby car, apparently there are yeah. only two in existence, and the Fiat 1800 Saloon. And the guy, I was yeah. talking to the guy that owned that, and he said, there's two others in the UK, he said, but they are complete wrecks. He said, this is the only one that he's able to drive about. And it's like you just said, I can remember the Datsun Cherry, way before they, they decided to call anything a Nissan, was a common sight, and the Fiat 1800 Saloon was a common sight. As I said, we're down to two and one. I mean, yeah. I think there's less than a th I think there's less than eight hundred marinas still on the road, or it's still out there. Yeah, they're very, very low in number. We've got to be careful with um, how many left as a, as a website because um, you've got to distinguish between cars that are on the road and cars that are sawned. And they're also, because of uh, how many left takes to state from the DVLA, would you believe a lot of um, data entered into the DVLA is wrong? So there might be a few more or a few less even because cars are badly described on V5. Wouldn't surprise yeah. me with the joy that I've just had with the DVLA. They oh, took no. they took five months to send... Well, they didn't send me the V5. They sent yeah. me a letter to tell me that they might be sending me a V5. I thought, well, why didn't you just send me the new V5 instead of the oh. letter? Did you, is that a V62 application? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I got yeah, another. Yeah. I got another car. Sent the uh, sent the appropriate bit off, uh, and then you're only allowed to to prompt them with three emails. The DVLA. After that, they refuse to have anything to do with you un, un, until they're ready to do whatever it is they're doing or not doing at this moment in time. Uh, wow. It was just a, it was just the, the incredulity of sending me a letter to tell me they might send me the V five. Yeah. It's a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that you still they still 
only accept checks for things as well. That that really does my head in. It's like going back to the seventies. But uh, anyway, the, the, but the uh, yeah the the cars that are super rare are mainly cars you you remember being really common back in the day. Uh, there are cars that have disappeared that were once very common, and it it is. It, I would I would say it's understandable because you wouldn't class them as being desirable. They were just transport. But actually, when you textualize them now in our memories and, and our, uh, our nostalgia and, our, and actually our need for a bit of simplicity as well in the world, you know, these days you, you, you cause a, a total complex Whereas back in the day, uh, you know, with the Morris Marina, for instance, it's an engine, a gearbox, some wheels and some seats, and then you went off. And it, 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 you, you could hit it with a hammer and it worked better. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, so that desire for simplicity and that desire for something that you remember that, that helps you in your life, I, I think it's really powerful. And, and I think all of these things we're talking about are the reasons why classic cars have become uh, these, this type of classic car, the people's cars, I like to call them, the cars that touched our lives. These cars are becoming more and more popular, more and more desirable, simply through one rarity and two familiarity. Uh, you touched on that then, you hit it with a hammer to give it a tune-up and make it run better. I mean, that's yeah. the one thing. I mean, I review a lot of modding cars, and I'll be quite honest, I'll probably be struck off the list of uh, the Guild of Motoring Writers for this one. I f- most modding cars bore me rigid. They're just stodgemobiles. You open the bonnet, you, there's just a huge plastic uh, covering on them. You're not meant to do anything to them. Uh, whereas the old cars, I mean, a friend of mine's into vintage cars. You open the bonnet, you, on the vintage cars, you can change a head gasket in half an hour. Everything is there, the plugs is sticking out. Cars from the 60s, etc., I suppose they were becoming slightly more complicated, but they are easy to work on. Everything is there in its simplest yeah. form. Yeah, I mean, if in a way, modern cars and the way they're put together is not what you'd call environmentally friendly. Because in the old days, if a car broke, you could fix it. You could fix individual components. Um, you could you could take something from a car, fill it up a bench put it back on and and it would you could you could be self-sufficient with old cars modern cars i i think a lot of this is deliberate something goes wrong you can actually almost in some cases you need to bend the car yeah um, and that can't be that can't be environmentally friendly so or if it goes wrong you have to basically take off an entire part of the car and then put a new component on um it's wasteful and I think it's cynical as well. It's about make the manufacturers making as much money as they possibly can because they make more money these days out of servicing and parts. And they go about cars, out selling the cars in the first place. Um, so you know, I th- I think that that has to change if, if we're going to get serious about about being our environmental credentials. We need to have cars that you can fix again at home. Um, and it, it wouldn't be that difficult either. It could be it could be a lot easier than it is now. They've taken the responsibility away from individual owners and taken it back into the dealership and back into the companies so they can make more money. Um, and that isn't about that. Nothing to do with green credentials. That, that's just to do with profiteering, really. Now, I mean, making that point, I've always said. I mean, like. 
uh, people into classic cars, you've got to be able to be a mechanic. The modern the modern garage doesn't have mechanics; it has fitters. Because, as you said, the only thing they do they take part A off and part B off and put a brand new part A and part B back on and the car because the car uh, talks to the laptop it's quite happy once it's had that done but I mean the one thing I do notice with a, with friends who are in the classic car industry and the restoration industry there's a decreasing number of mechanics or skilled mechanics and a decreasing number of young people wanting to be mechanics i mean what do you, i mean are the young people getting into this and wanting to go and buy themselves a set of tools i think i think it's really interesting um there's a perception that young people aren't aren't as into it or want or i think they are but the problem is the opportunities aren't there and they don't they don't consider them they're not given those opportunities as options um uh, if you look at somewhere like the Heritage Guild Academy at Bisp Heritage, which is a fabulous place, and I urge anybody who's not been there to go and have a look, um, the, there are a group of 40 really motivated young people training to be classic car uh, restorers and mechanics, looking at different specialisms, and they are as enthusiastic as anybody. Um, they still have granddads who were fixing cars and remember them. I mean, we all, I mean, we all get turned on to cars, I think, through our parents more than anything else. And my yeah. earliest memory of my dad is lapping in valves on a Ford Kent engine. <laughs> um, so, you know, no wonder I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, I love engineering that's on the outside, and I think it's inspiring and really interesting. And in a world where you press a button and stuff happens for you, and you don't engage with any processes, and when you work, you don't really see an end product, I think actually getting kids involved in classic cars will save them from a, a, a life of boredom, to be honest. Um, there's nothing more inspiring, nothing more, more fun than uh, working on a classic car and getting it to work better. And I know people might think that sounds weird, but I consider working on a classic car a bit like gardening. It chills me out. Yeah. I mean, full restoration or welding or anything like that. But just, you know, just setting the tappets or changing the oil or timing an engine or, you know, stuff like that. Simple tasks that make you even cleaning the car. <laughs> stuff that makes things better. And at the end of it, you stand back and you go, I did that. That's incredibly satisfying, and I think young, it, it, it's it's incredibly incredibly satisfying to anybody as a human being. So whether they're young or old, you get them into that, and they'll be inspired, and they'll come and do it a lot. The guys at Heritage Skills Academy, you know, the young lad who got fascinated by magnetos, uh, and he's now one of Britain's top magneto specialists. Magnetos, you know. Stop using them. World War Two. So it, it's it, it's. I don't think age is any barrier. I think the only thing we need to do is make sure young people have the opportunity to get trained up, and make sure young people have the option as understand that it's something they can do. By the way, the, the Heritage Skills Academy at Bista oversubscribes. People are banging on the door to get in uh, to get trained. Um, so you know there is a skill shortage in classic cars, but I also think that it, there is also huge willingness on, on the part of young people to get involved. But only if they're shown the door. Yeah, you can't. You, people won't won't come in unless they're shown the door. Now, if somebody is uh, young and wants to get into classic cars and work on them, what would you say is probably the the best cars to go for? Well, I think. So many young people started on uh, Morris Miners and Minis. 
Um, and I think there's a really great place to start. The Morris Minor's Club has got a fantastic youth wing, um, and, and their young members. It, it, there is, I think, I think there are three or four hundred um, around the country. They're, they're brilliant. They get together. They have a laugh. They don't let adults in. <laughs> um, uh, they and and they love their cars as well, and they learn together. And they're a good bunch. They're a really good bunch. Minis everywhere. You look around the country. There are mini clubs, and, and I'm talking about the older mini here. Uh, you know, but the, the modern mini's got its own club too. The early BMW mini from the from the early noughties. Yeah. But the, the the classic mini has got a fantastic following, and there are thousands of young people around the country who who get their you know get get in the minis and get together, do them up. Also, mini scene has got a, a really interesting modifying scene as well. And I think here's something that we we'll probably need to talk about, particularly with the with uh, um, reference to younger people, the modifying scene is really vibrant and, and still alive. And it's not what you know; it's not the kind of max power scene we remember from the nineties and the eighties, <laughs> where you, know, you just put a stupid wing on it and lowered it and put you know, salutes. It's about it's about making just personalising something in, in, in a really nice way to, in, without compromising its drivability. Because I think one of the things that is important to mention when young people get involved in classic cars, often those classic cars are the only car they've got, and it's the car that they need to use to get to work, um, even if the parents' insurance policy. Um, so it's, I think that there is, if you're talking about the cars that I would urge my kids to get involved with uh, as a first step in classic car ownership, Morris Miners and Minis all, all day long. They're both still plentiful. The parts are cheap. You can basically build both cars from parts that are available to buy off the shelf. Um, and they've got great club portfolios and a great social scene around them. I think the other one to mention, VWs. So if you've got um, either an air-cooled VW or an early Golf or something like that, the VW scene's really vibrant and really exciting, really interesting. Um, I think there's something really good to go for there as well. I mean, VW scene, Morris Minor, Minis. I mean, that's the other thing. I, whilst commentating, I've had the class categories moved, and I now finish off 1990 to 2005. And it's interesting. It also gives What's my a what is a classic, and I've had co- I've had cars in the nineteen ninety to two thousand and five uh, category, and I look at them. It's like the Peugeot two hundred five GTI. I can remember being on the launch of that when it was a brand new car, and you yeah. think stroll on. But the one thing I've tried to do, especially for young drivers, because you get a lot of young drivers with these cars. Um, yeah is to try and say, look, these cars are classics. I mean, how do you define, or how would you define a classic car, especially the modern classics? We, this, we really need a pint for this, don't we? We need, <laughs> we need to be in a pub drinking pints to have this conversation properly. But um, I, we talked about this on the mag a few weeks ago, and here is, here is what we thought. And still 10 years ago, you could define a classic Mustang, if it's got chrome bumpers, it's a classic. Yeah. I think the world's moved on now. Uh, here's the thing. I think, from my mind, I'll say if it's got a tape deck, it's a classic. <laughs> now, then we think, hold on, though. Even if it hasn't got a tape deck, but it's got a CD player, is it? So we're, we're moving forward. At step by step. The truth is, the truth is about whether you, how you define a classic. If you love your car and cherish it, and you think it's, it's, it's a classic, in my mind, it bloody is. Yeah. Pardon French. Because um, it, it, no one else has really got the right to, to define 
um, what you drive in so general a term, because it is a very, very general term, classic. If it's classic to you, it's a classic. That's what I say. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think also, you know, potentially some cars become classics quicker than others. I'm not going to say what, what I think, because what I think will be different from what you think. Um, it's all about perception. And uh, if you think it's classic, I think it probably is. And if you want to have an argument about it, that's fine too. I think as long as we're respectful of each other and, and we do it with good humour, that's a good debate to have. What I can't stand is snobbery. Uh, and I've seen it happen in the field at uh, classic car shows before. Yes. Um, when people are turned away from gates, people are told that their car isn't worthy of, of being parked in this particular area. Um where, where club officials get above themselves and start behaving like the members of the Stasi. Um, to be honest, uh, that doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to. And one of the things that I've actually written about the latest issue of Classical Classics is that we are now living in times which are a lot more inclusive and a lot more relaxed. And people, you know, I've been to classic car shows, especially local shows, where you see a, a, a 2000 TVR parked up against a, a pre-war Alphys. And you know what? These shows are all the better for it because what happens then is people have, are, are fascinated and surprised and continually interested by the different variety of cars that they see before them. It also means you've got young people talking to older people and getting interested in older cars. Putting the same field together and cross fertilization is really important uh, because it means that people are being introduced to worlds that they might not normally come into contact with and that's great that's important it's brilliant it means that particularly with older classics that they've got future because younger people come into contact with them and see them and talk to people and get involved and get stuck in so this this age of snobbery this age of exclusivity this age of of if you don't have one of these then you're not coming in yeah um, i think it i think it's either gone or its days are numbered and good thing too well, to give you a quick example of that, about two years ago, I was uh, comparing in the arena, and it was car of the show, and the format is all the class winners come back at the end of the day, and it is like the best of the best. And I walk round the audience and say, which would you vote for? If you could go home in one of these, which would it be? And I'll be quite honest, my better half then makes ticks of... Uh, the, the one with the most number of ticks is the winner. And it was yeah. between two, and it was between an Aston Martin V8 Vantage and a yeah. Series 1 Mazda MX-5. And the MX-5 won. And the guy with the Aston Martin threw a tantrum. And he wanted to know why. I said, because people can relate to the Mazda MX-5 more than the Aston. I said, and there's still every chance you could probably buy that MX-5. I said, well, not that particular one. I said, it's been nicely restored. I said, you could buy a tatty MX-5 that's still usable. I said, for less than a 1,000 quid in all probability. I said, your Aston stands you at what? Quarter of a million? And it goes back to what you've just said. Most, and I use this phrase, shall we say wisely as such most ordinary people can relate to the mazda more than the aston the aston is something they used to see in a magazine or on television or in a film yeah 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 no, i think the relatability thing is really really important and it, it's i'm i'm very aware as well that a thing of beauty is a thing of beauty and it, it won't change that aston will be a thing of beauty forever it's the car that people aspire to but if you want familiarity, if you want, want something which which people feel as if it, it, it could it could be an owner of, or if they've got memories of it, it's much more likely to be a common car that was around back in the day. Yeah, um, it doesn't make either car any less valuable or less interesting. 
sometimes difficult. By the way, having come back and judged many shows myself, I, I've, I, you know, you have my sympathy on that. <laughs> it's a hard job. It's a, 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 I've judged concourse before. Judging concourse competitions, which is uh, for any people who don't know, is where people present absolutely pristine examples of, of original uh, in, in, in original terms of classic cars, and you go around and you have to judge them. Um, it's, it includes people kind of cleaning underneath their car, cleaning inside exhaust pipes with toothbrushes, you know, yes. that kind of level of detail. Um, and I've judged them before, and it's a great way to make one really good friend and lose about 100. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult job, and uh, I don't I, I don't take it lightly. But I mean, also, again, the one other thing as well, a lot of the, all of this is about opinions, and, and I think, you know, it needs always to be taken with a pinch of salt. There's one other thing. I'm getting, there's a lot of other things I'm saying. I'm saying a lot, aren't I? Um, but there's a little maxim we have in, in the magazine where, where people start getting on the high horses with always say, this isn't the defeat of fascism. It's just a bunch of old cars. And we do need to remember that. You know, no one's died. True. I mean, I can remember at one one car show where I was I was uh, comparing and judging. Uh, Ford Sierra RS Cosworth turned up. It turned up on old steel wheels and tyres because its actual wheels were uh, all wrapped in cling film. Oh, really? Uh, it was jacked up and had its proper wheels put back onto it for the judging. And then at the end of it, back on its old steel wheels, they were heaving and hauling trying to get it back onto its trailer. And I foolishly said, well, why don't you just start it up and drive it on? And somebody said, nobody can remember the last time this car actually was started up. It's just oh. one huge ornament. Yeah, you see, I'm, I can't get my head around, to be honest. I, it makes me a bit sad to hear that, because cars are meant to be used. I, if it was up to me, every concourse competition would have the same rule. That is, every car has to be driven there and driven back in order to qualify for entry. Because otherwise you're talking about something completely different. You're talking about things that preserve an aspect as almost like works of art. And that's a different competition. That's a different thing. But concourse surely has to be about working cars competing against each other. It's got to be, otherwise it's it, it's not it's not a level playing field. So yeah, it makes me a bit sad to about that. I I'm I'm very much of a use it, enjoy it, fix it. I've never really entered a concourse with any of my classics. I probably never will. It's not my kind of thing. But I, I totally respect people to do it. I think it's amazing. Um, I like I like use. I don't I don't own a car that's young younger than twenty years. Yeah, I never have um, because you know I think. Particularly if you're going to edit some magazine like Practical Classic, you have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And to be honest, I read the magazine before I even wrote for it. Um, it was part of my DNA, so there's no reason why I shouldn't continue in that fashion. And using my cars is all part of, of that. It has to be. I mean, ironically you say that. I mean, every time I go into my garage, I look at my Morgan and think, I really need to wash that for the simple reason my Morgan gets used as often as I can possibly use it. I said it's an all three, so people scowl and say it's not a classic. I say, well, it's it's a combination. It's 70-odd-year-old vintage and a modern engine. But, uh, like you said, my Morgan's do it. People come in and say, well, it's, it needs a wash. I'll say, yeah, but I'd rather drive it than wash it. So whether I'm wrong in that aspect or not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm very. I, I, if I if I I do know Miss Manners, but I'm not an expert, you know. I, and this is one thing people say: Oh, you gotta you gotta know everything. And all, if you drive, if you use it a lot, you've gotta know everything about it. Blah blah blah. I don't actually. I always use specialists if I don't know what I'm doing. There's plenty of them about, um, and you know they're always 
some good people to talk to because it's a small business and if you're not good people know and then you go out of business oh very and, true very true you know so it, it and so it's a great it's a great business to be in. and if you don't know everything then you find a specialist who does and they tend to be less expensive than taking modern cars to a dealership by the way um so i i, I know how to i know how to hear when my car's not quite right i know how to change your head gasket and i know how to fix a, a brake you know I, don't, I also you know learn how to weld I don't often do it anymore unless somebody else do it because it's a pain in the bum um but you know so it's not shouldn't be scary it shouldn't be foreboding and also if you read a magazine like practical classics we show you how to do the basic stuff every issue it's very it's very approachable it's it's as easy as doing the garden that's what i say always leave it's it's very logical all you need to do is step by step and you'll get there it's like I said, like we said, the one thing about Practical Classics is I bought it this issue for the simple reason it had the cover mount of the original John Haynes How to Build a 750 yeah. Special, which I bought, shall we say, for a, a hit of nostalgia. I bought that's why I got this one. I thought, what a fantastic yeah. thing! Uh, but y you show people how to do it, and I would say, if you sit down and look at it, it's probably not quite as difficult as you think it is in certain aspects. No, it's not, and and there's a lot of mystification around working on on cars, and actually deliberately so, because I think some people like to keep other people stupid so they can make money out of them. But um, if you do it yourself, it, it will help you with it. And if you, if we can't help you with it, then we've got our online uh, portal called Skillshack, where we talk about all the aspects, about 150 videos up there showing exactly how to do stuff. Um, so it's it's. It, no one should be put off. It's as easy as, as bacon cake. You know, it's like following a recipe when you're working on the classic cut, especially following it through the mag or following it with our online tutorials. Um, it is like bacon cake. It's like putting a recipe together. At the end of it, you, when you've cooked it, you've got a car which is even better than it was before, and that can't be a bad thing. So, um, and this issue, yeah, this issue we've got out at the moment is the the Haynes manual is, well, the Haynes company is 60 years old. Um and we're 40 years old this year, so we're both sharing an anniversary. The magazine started in 1980. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, 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 we've got together. Haynes was actually, believe it or not, going to be the original publisher of Practical Classics because there's a lot of synergy between us. We've got a lot in common. Um, so we had a chat earlier this year, and we did a little profile piece on Haynes, and we've also done, got an offer on, on the John Haynes um, book. Uh, sadly, John died a couple of years ago, but he's had a, a wonderful um, biography written about him. Uh, which uh, which we're putting in the magazine as an offer, um, and we've got the first ever Haynes manual as a cover mount on the issue this 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 time round, and it's fascinating. He did that when he was a teenager because he realised that there was nothing out there to help him build his own Austin Seven Special, um, what you did back in the day. So he thought to himself, and this is, this is an interesting. I wonder how many kids these days would be this self sufficient. I, I like to think. A lot would. You sometimes out it in our kind of everything's done for your world. He thought, well, if, if I can't find something that I, I can use, then there's an opportunity. If I'm going to make myself an Austin 7 special, I'll write down what I do to make it work. I'll work out what works and what doesn't. And then I'll make a little manual out of it so somebody else can do it. And then I'll sell a few of them and see if I can make a few quid. <laughs> and he did. And that's how Hayden started. That's our multi-million pound multinational corporation publishing house across the planet it started from a bloke having an idea and seeding an opportunity uh, and made partly to help himself but also to help other people to the story you know and it was amazing absolutely amazing so we're really proud to have that on the cover of the Mac Haynes reprinted it for us um, and uh, yeah what a cracking little thing to have 
Danny Hopkins, we could carry on chatting, as you said. We need to be in a decent alehouse uh, ch- carrying on this. But regrettably, uh, time is our enemy today. So, Danny Hopkins, editor of Practical Classics magazine, thank you very much for joining me on today's Backseat Radio Show. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. on price never beaten on service whether it's cars bikes or commercials Hoddy tires are the best in the business and when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle specific requirements nobody comes close to david lakin and the Hoddy tires team so give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk 